Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. You have to be diligent about defining exactly who you want to work with and exactly who you don't want to work with, right? So if you're doing that and if you're comfortable with saying no and saying, hey, I I appreciate what you're looking to do here, but we're probably not going to be the best fit for you for these reasons. One, you're going to put good out there. You're going to, you might refer them to other people who would then probably refer other people back to you for different fit for like other fits that aren't good for them, for example. But it starts there in my opinion, right? Because then you're really only bringing in clients that you know that you're going to work well with and that you can trust and that trust you. And if you do that consistently, and if you know and trust because of the process that you have in place, based on what you're doing for marketing, based on what you're doing for your business development and and building that pipeline, if that's consistent, and it has been consistent because you have those processes in place and you devote a few hours a week to, to making to maintaining them, then you don't have to have that fear that that's going to dry up, right? Because that's consistent. You know that that's going to come in and you don't have to be bringing in those projects that are like, I don't really want this, but we need the money. Welcome to Context and Clarity, the place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Thursday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, Catherine McPhail and I, and our live audiences from all across the internet, have a conversation with a special guest to search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect, no matter what your context is. In this episode, we talk with Tyler Sumala. He does business development for Monograph, and he writes. Tyler Tactics. Our guest today is an architect, 
a community builder, a serial learner, and a tactician. He's a product manager focused on business development at Monograph and the creator of Tyler Tactics. Tyler Sumola, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Hey, thanks so much for having me. That was an epic introduction. Before we can really get into a conversation about all of this today, I think first we need to understand, Tyler, what what is or what are Tyler Tactics? Yeah, Tyler Tactics. So I ended up starting Tyler Tactics. It was around September. Um, for anyone that doesn't know me or hasn't been following me, I've been relatively active on LinkedIn for about the past year or so. Um, around last January, I started posting on LinkedIn every day, um, just my experiences in architecture, the challenges I was having, and then also what I was hearing from um, a lot of my conversations with other architects through my work at Monograph. Um, turned out uh, architects are not alone in their challenges, right? That uh, um, Everyone's pretty much experiencing a lot of the same challenges. So after doing that for seven or eight months, I decided to launch just a weekly newsletter. So every Sunday morning, that's what Tyler Tactics is. Every Sunday morning, one quick and powerful tactic um, related to helping you communicate your unique value or um, attract high quality clients. So it's pretty, uh, pretty heavily focused on business development. I love that. And, you know, I started thinking about that. You're an architect, you've been to architecture school, you've worked at some large firms, you know, notably, you know, go look at Tyler's LinkedIn. You can see where he's worked. Some big firms, big notable firms, some small firms, had your own firm. Um, now you're doing business development with Monograph, who's a friend of, of Entree Architect. We love Monograph around here and Robert, you, the whole team over there. And, and that was, that was one of the things in my, in the back of my mind is what have you seen or experienced in, you know, throughout this? And, and you, you've taught in architecture school as well. I left that out, but what have you, seen or experienced and you sort of answered that already but you know what was it that says i've i have to do this i have to whether it's the linkedin posts or the actual you know now what it's evolved into the tyler tactics but but what's what's the catalyst that really drove it and and said i've got to do this i think it was the response like by everyone on linkedin under like it didn't take long for to, to be like writing out challenges I had experienced or challenges that I was hearing from other people that other people were catching on. And, and they were like, oh, I, you know, I experienced that same thing. And then I would talk about, I would talk to my friends because, you know, who are my friends? That's other architects. That's like, that's the only people that we're friends with. Right. I mean, that's what Entree yeah, Architect yeah, that's right. is, right? So yeah. I was talking to my friends about, um, uh, and I should say, mind you, I, I came to Monograph post like running my own little studio. Right. So I, I basically learned development after, after what would have been nicer to learn it before. Um, so I learned it, I learned it after the fact, right. But um, talked with them about, you know, do they experience these same challenges? Do, do you have an effective way to like run a conversation with a client? Do you do that? Have you systematized that? Do you have a consistent way of, of tackling that? And kind of everyone was like looking at me um, like I was crazy. Right. So uh, so that's when I was like, you know, that's that's kind of when I decided I should probably take at least what I've learned um, in my business development role at Monograph and and kind of apply that back to uh, my own experiences in architecture and, and what other people are talking. You know, I, I love the way serendipity works, but every every month for context and clarity, we have our our book club, and so we read a book every month, and then the last Friday of the month, we discuss that book. And one of our goals this year is to. Um, match up the authors in the books if we can. We can't always 
you know, not every author says, oh yeah, I'd love to come on and talk to a community of small firm architects, but we're, we're not, we're not doing too bad so far this year. Next week on Thursday, so a week from today on Context and Clarity Live, we'll talk with Marcus Sheridan, who is the author of They Ask You Answer. And then that's that's our February book club book, They Ask You Answer. Uh, so we'll discuss that on Friday. And as you were just explaining that, it, it struck me that there's at least a portion of that, you know, learning learning from other people, learning from other architects what they're struggling with. That's really a big part of of uh, the they ask uh, you answer concept or or business model, and so that's you know it's it's it strikes me that it's not you sort of standing on the mountaintop saying this is what I know this is this is what I've learned. Some of it certainly is what you've learned, but I, I love the fact that it's it's become this community effort in a way. Maybe it's just crowdsourcing the questions or the problems, but uh, it's it's a pretty unique approach, I think. What I, what I completely underestimated in moving into a business development role at Monograph was the pulse that I would get on the industry from just having, I mean, I've had over a thousand conversations with architects in the last year, right? So, so just having that many conversations with architects, you start, like, you hear the themes over and over and it becomes pretty clear the, the challenges that everyone's facing. That makes sense. I mean, we, we talked before we went live that we shape all of these weeks of context and clarity around the theme, you know, sort of the context and clarity live theme. And so we started Monday talking about clients, you know, who, why do you work with the people that you do? And then Tuesday, um, assuming I'm one of those people, assuming I'm one of those clients, why should I hire you to uh, design my project? And then yesterday, Wednesday, it was, uh, why do you charge what you do? And, and, uh, I noticed a lot of a lot of you know the client uh, project fee theme going through many of your posts. You know, it's these obviously are not new problems. These are not new complaints. That's how they're often expressed, yeah. right? <laughs> but I wondered because we've you know for decades we've complained a l- about a lot of these things. But I wondered as we look into twenty twenty three or deeper into twenty twenty and beyond, are these uh, are these topics and these questions and these complaints, are they more important than ever based on where we are and where we're moving with technology? What do you think about, about the future of this versus the past of this? I think it's, I just think it's more important in general. Like I think it, sh- I think it should be important from the beginning. I think it's sad that we're arriving upon it now <laughs> that, that we need like some kind of potential economic crisis to be, to, to get us to be thinking about these things. Right. It's not, like under, being able to communicate your value and understanding what your value is um, and understanding what your clients need uh, to me should be like among the top priorities uh, and running your practice beyond, beyond what you're designing and beyond what you're building is like, those are kind of at the forefront. It's interesting you say that there's a, um, there's a firm that's been in the news quite a bit. I'm not going to name the firm because I'm not looking to bash anybody, but there's a firm that's been in the news a lot since Thanksgiving for a number of reasons. And one of the things, there was a recent interview in a, in a publication and I, I read through it and I said to myself, it's like, you know, you, you keep talking about the system, right? It's the, the, my version the of what they're a part of. <laughs> yeah. The system that they're a part of and blaming yeah. the system and what I see right from this side and I don't know them at all right I've I've read articles and all of this but I don't know these people I don't know you know I don't have an inside peek into the firm at all but what I see is 
a firm that has not figured out how to work inside and outside of the box, maybe tweak the system, you know, maybe push the walls in certain directions to accomplish the things, the goals that they have. And, and that, you know, you said, what about from the beginning? One of the things that they talk about is, is profitability. You've got to design your business to be profitable. It ought to be designed to, I'm not saying you're going to be profitable day one, but it ought to be designed to be profitable. And, you know, a lot of us blame education. I teach pro practice, but we've got to learn these things, right? We've got to figure these things out uh, in order to move the profession forward, I think. Yeah. We also can't think of profit as being like a bad term, right, right? which we do kind of have that, like, it's almost been, it's almost been framed to us as like an enemy, yeah. right? It's not, it's not about profit. It's about, you know, the social, social good. It's about what you're doing, which it is. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be valued for that. I feel like we're supposed to just love what we do and that's right. payment enough. And if you want more, then you're just right, asking for right. too much. So the attitude I find, yes. Seems like a rock song from the fifth or from the sixties or something like that. Yeah. I you know, I have a question that may be a really basic question, but we talk about values and knowing your value and what's your value and you should know what it is. But I have actually when to be honest, when I'm hearing you say that, I like can you give me an example of values or what my value might be? It depends on your clients. It depends on market sector. It depends on what you want to focus on. It depends on what you care about too, right? So it kind of combines all of those things, but it's, you know, who are your clients specifically? Um, what outcome are they typically looking for? Uh, what's the thing that you tend to do really well that your clients get excited about? You know, is that always being on time and on budget? Um, is that uh is that the the risk reduction that you have? Is that saving them them money on materials? Is you know, I mean, there's is that keeping them out of keeping them out of jail? I, I mean, there's so there's so much there's so much value that architects offer, right? But I just mean like you know, you're reducing you're reducing their risk. You're making a massively positive impact to their lifestyle, right? Whether you're doing residential or commercial work, this is these are places and spaces that people spend a ton of their time. And you're improving their wellness. That's going to have a direct impact on like their life and their livelihood. Um, and that's a lot of, that's a lot of value. Uh, it's, and it's hard to quantify, right? So that means, so instead of leaving us to quantify what we typically do is kind of just like leave whatever our notion of like the market to quantify it, or we leave it to the client maybe a little bit to quantify it. And I think that's probably a bad move and it's led to the kind of commoditization of the industry, right? And that's why everyone's competing for lower fees, uh, which is not not the direction we want to be heading, Estri. You had a, a tactic the other day, maybe mm -hmm. it was a, a while back, about transformation. And I think that that's really critical for us to understand. Um, I, I use this, so those that have been around Context and Clarity for a while have heard this over and over and over, but I use this formula, it's a made-up formula is P plus S equals R, problem plus solution equals result. So your clients come with a problem. They call it a project, but it's a problem they're trying to solve. They're looking to you for a solution. It's a P plus S. But then what they really value is the result, not, not, the, not the built thing, right? The home or the pizza shop or whatever it is. It's whatever the result of that work, what that allows them to, which is basically what you're talking about when you're saying transformation. It's there's a project, you know, that they come to you with and, and you design something, but the transformation, the result 
is what they what they actually value. And I I think in order to move the profession forward, we really have to focus more on that than the P and the S. You know, the, the, those those will never go away. They have to be there in order to generate the R or the. But I think when we're talking about the value, the unique value that you uh, bring to your clients, to your work, et cetera, it's got to be about that transformation as as you laid it out in that uh, in that post uh, a week or yeah. two ago. Yeah, you call it results. I think I just call it outcome. But you know, you have client has a current situation and they have a desired outcome where they want to be, and that's not necessarily like the building. It's more like the it's the lifestyle that's attached to that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what does that allow me to do? Right. What does that allow me to do? And ideally, like your value, uh, right, is that if you're if you if that client is the right fit for you, and if you're the right fit for that client, then you are positioning yourself as the perfect vehicle to get them from where they're at to that desired outcome. Why? Um, why do you think this is so important? I mean, you, you've you said you started started posting once every weekday. Now you're up to twice, seven days a week. It's evolved into Tyler Tactics. You obviously think this is very important because you're, you are uh, generating lots of great content that is resonating. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at your numbers and I don't know what your subscription numbers are, but I see the number of people that are following you on LinkedIn. It's over 14,000, I think, when I looked before. There's a lot of people engaging with you around this. So why, why is it, why are people so interested and why is this so important in, on February 16th, 2023? I mean, it relates to, I think it relates to everything, right? So this is kind of goes back to the beginning, right? This, this idea that profit, that profit is important. It's not an enemy. Um, it's something that helps everything. There's other parts of, there's other parts of what I talk about on LinkedIn. I don't necessarily talk about them in my newsletter, but other parts of things that I talk about in LinkedIn in terms of challenges in the industry, like burnout, like low pay, like long hours, right? And these are huge, huge contributing factors um, and something that can definitely help to improve those things is if you have a profitable firm, right? If you have a profitable firm, you can increase your team's salaries, right? You can hopefully be more picky and choosy about what projects you bring in, right? Which is going to decrease the opportunity for burnout you can pay for better benefits across your team. Everyone can work less, have more time with family, just have a better work-life balance, which is a huge, huge challenge in the industry. Um, so for me, it's like it's kind of like the down. It's it's the outcome again, right? It's like, right. Yeah. yeah, I want you, I want you to be able to bring in better clients, but I want that because I want you to, you know, be able to have a better profit on those projects. I want you to have better relationships with those clients. We don't want to be pulling our hair out for specific clients, and I want you to be able to give that back to your team so that they can also have an improvement on their lives as well. Yeah. It's funny. You just applied the, the concept to the profession. Right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think it's, I think it's hundred percent true. Burnout, burnout, something we've all been dealing with. And even though theoretically I would have agreed with you throughout my career, it hasn't been until like the last, until context and clarity really that I decided to make a change in some way, not taking clients who were going to take time that I could be giving to my ideal clients and that sort of thing. So it's harder to put into practice. Oh, it's super hard. Yeah. Then, yeah, because especially if you need the work, then you don't want to give up the the work to get the better work. So then you could be stuck in that project for a couple of years, a year or two years. It's not it's not a yeah. small thing. When we're looking at, you know, you, you talked about the fact that you interviewed, talked to a thousand architects last year. You know, and Catherine, you know, what you're bringing up, I think, well, I know is very common. 
right? The uh, opportunity cost and and all of the things that are associated with with not focusing on our ideal clients, but also the reality and the fear. You know, the reality is I've got to keep working, right? I, I, I need the work. And I've got lots of stories about this that most most in this community have heard. Um, and a lot of them revolve around making bad decisions, you know, on, on my part, um, bad leadership on my part. So what what are some of the most common struggles that you see right now, especially especially small firms. I know you're look. I know you're talking to all different size firms, but for this small firm community, what are some of the most common problems that you see? I think it's mostly small. What's funny is that I should I should say with and so that was through my work with Monograph, right? So I'm in a business development role at Monograph. I'm having conversations with firms that are you know they're coming in because they're facing some kind of challenge in their practice, right? So those are challenges. And that's, and that's, and that's separate from, so I'm taking like those business development skills that I'm learning from doing that process, reapplying them back to, Hey, architects can use this too for their clients. But so I wanted to frame that to say the common challenges that we, that I was hearing about all the time that I still hear about all the time from small practices, right. Are things like, um, just, just getting a hold on, on what's ha- on how your team is performing. Right. So like on budget spend. Right. Where where are where are our project budgets at? How many projects do we have? What are their statuses? How are we organizing? Um, if we have our kind of pipeline fall through right now, what's our revenue look like for the next six months, for the next 12 months? Um, right. It's usually it's usually somehow answered through a combination of spreadsheets, um, right, through a combination of different different time tracking tools. Um, or maybe horizontal tools like Monday or Asana trying to track, you know, you're using like something to track tasks. You're using something different to track time. You're using something different to do accounting. You're using a spreadsheet to, to try to like track budget, which I mean, just saying that, I'll, you know, that's, that's a lot, that's a lot to, to keep track of. And so usually what happens is they don't because they don't, because, you know, we're architects and we're terrible at um, prioritizing business. Uh, we're great at prioritizing design. So what happens? You push all of those admin things to the back, um, and then you actually have no idea where your projects are at. You find out after it's too late that you've spent more than what you budgeted for, and then you kind of just keep on repeating that process because you don't have a system, a proactive system in place to make sure that it doesn't happen. One of the things that struck me in that interview that I mentioned before was the comment that pro- that um, scope creep was destroying the profitability. <laughs> I, I, I do not mean to make light of this firm and, and the situation, but it's like, yes, scope creep if you allow it and don't- If you allow it, yeah. Um, if, if you allow it and, and don't charge for additional services, et cetera, it, it's not just going to eat your profit. It's going to it's going to destroy it, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. You didn't, you know, you there's going to be no profit to eat. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You're going to be feeding the monster. Anyway, if you want to know more about that, Magic Google Box knows you can find it easily. What is it? After profits all eaten up, then what? Because it's going to be eating something after that. It's just eating revenue at that point. I mean, it's just... Right. And then and then you don't pay yourself, but you pay the people who work for you. Yeah. Or it's just, it's not, yeah, it's not pretty. <clears throat> That's why I don't have any teeth over here. Because I had I decided to get my teeth pulled instead of fixed um, so I could pay... Oh, I thought that was My because boy. you're eating the profit. I don't, I don't even think he appreciates it. <laughs> he appreciates it. <laughs> I, I broke my teeth eating all my profit. I'll get it that <laughs> way from now on when I think about that. 
Because <laughs> obviously that's what I did. I mean, it's like real consequences to doing stuff like that. And then you're right. If Unless you have it all kind of uh, charted out, it can come as a surprise. And it's not like we're, I mean, this is where like Entree Architect is amazing, right? I mean, you just, it's anyone, anyone that's already here, anyone that's listening to it, anyone that's in the Entree Architect community, I can tell you right now that you're already, you're in the top, you're in the top 10%. You're in the top 5% of, of firms just from even acknowledging um, that it is an interest of yours, that it might be, that it might be a challenge and that it's something that you're focused uh, or that you're thinking about working on. Like you're already there. It's, it's astounding to me, the number of firms that I talk to that, that aren't, that aren't really thinking about it. And bringing it back around to, you know, a lot of your focus, or at least that I have seen is about communicating your unique value. And so, you know, my, my, my feeling on that is if, if you're doing it right and you can tell us what that means, but if you're communicating your, I, your unique value and attracting your ideal clients and on down the line, that's the upstream that keeps you theoretically, hopefully, from these situations where you have clients that, that aren't willing to pay what you're worth and, and you're, you're, you know, you've got scope creep. There's a management issue there, but, but you've got scope creep eating into your profit or, or even your revenue um, and all of those things. So when you are advising firms on communicating your unique value, where do you start that conversation? Uh, start with asking them probably like what their existing process is for qualifying clients, right? That's an easier place to start because the harder conversation is like, how are you building your pipeline? Because um, it's usually that they're not and they're just waiting for work to come in um, typically, right? So it's much easier to start with, okay, well, when something comes in, how do you, how do you process it? How do you handle it, right? And more often than not, it's not, it may not be super systematized, or it might be like a spreadsheet that they're using. That's kind of a list of quantitative values. Like what's the, if it's a commercial product, like what's the number of employees? Like, where's the, where's this location? How, how many square feet is this? You know, so you're kind of like someone's coming and you're asking them very quantitative questions. And so I think that's, that's usually a red flag. It's not that that information isn't important. You do want to know it um, in order to, to kind of be able to evaluate the project on your own. But first you just have to start with the client themselves. Like what, what is it they're looking to do? Because people don't just wake up one morning and decide, you know what I want to do? I want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars on, uh, on solving, on, on like just getting a new house or on, on getting a new office because I want to. Like that doesn't happen. There is a, there's a struggle. They come to you because there's a struggle. There's a problem that they need to have solved. And they might not realize that that's what happened, uh, right? But that's that's what's happened, again, because you don't, you don't just like wake up one day and decide that you're going to take on a huge project. So the goal of that kind of qualification uh, and discovery, I call it a discovery process, right, is to, is to understand what brought them there, what challenges they're facing today, how is that impacting their day-to-day activities, and, and uh, what would an ideal outcome to that be, right? And then like, how would that then impact their ideal activities? Because you then you walk around, like then that's what you've done. You've identified their current situation and their current pains. You've identified where they want to be. And just from that as a general standpoint, you can identify whether or not they're a good, like, is that, can are you the vehicle that can get them from point A to point B? I like that. I like, and I also like that you're, you're really touching on emotional aspects. It, you know, it's not just, 
not just financial or, you know, hey, I, I need a, a permit set or, you know, I don't like dealing with the construction. It, it's dealing with the emotional aspect of what's the problem now? What does it feel like in the future once this problem has solved? Because we know from studies that, that that's what people attach value to is, is the emotional aspects of it. People do not make buying decisions with logic, right? And that's why we all have that one thing that we spend money on and we don't really care, right? We, we buy it with feel. We buy it with emotion. Um, so it's important to understand the emotions that are behind, uh, specifically like pain. It's really important to understand like what, what pains and what struggles they're having right now um, so that you can offer that pain relief to them. What's your what's the one thing you you'll illogically spend money on, Tyler? What's the one thing I illogically spend money? On? Well, it's much less now with I mean I have well, two I, I have two young kids, so basically nothing. <laughs> the kids are eating into the profit. Yeah. If I could illogically spend money on something, like it would probably be yeah, it'd probably be like a car. That's a good one. Yeah. I did that this year. It's a nice car. But yeah, it is illogical because I just wanted that car. And it wasn't it just it's like when people buy a house, I talk to people all the time about what they were looking for at a house. And then they just emotionally just speaks to them. They walked in, they knew it was a house. It didn't have most of the things they were looking for, but that's something. it just yeah. it was like an emotional yeah. reaction. That's an interesting point though, right? Because they, they've, I, I assume in that situation, they've made this list. We, we need to have this and that and the other. And then they walk into a house and they say, oh, this is the one. This feels like the one. And, and it becomes the one, I guess. So is there a way for us to take that scenario and apply it to how you deal with uh, prospects and clients? Like be the one for them? Like they just can't explain it, but they just have to hire you? I guess. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's where I would say it's like, it's so much less about that result, right? That you were talking about, right? You, the foundation of, of good clients, right? I, have, I wrote this, I wrote a newsletter a, a few months ago that was kind of talking about we have this we have this story that we tell ourselves that there's bad clients and there's good clients right and bad clients will always be bad clients and good clients will always be good clients when in reality there's a reason like there's a there's something behind a bad client being a bad client it's a lack of trust in you it's a lack of respect for you um, and that results from just a poor foundation of, of the relationship with you that doesn't like that person. Now there are, you know, there's edge cases where there's people that just always treat people poorly. Right. And hopefully you, you don't get those clients, but usually, right. The foundation of that is that you didn't set up a good relationship to begin with, right. You didn't, you didn't build rapport. You don't have an understanding of one another. You don't even know like what your hobbies are, the things that you care about. And I think thing, those things really do matter. And that applies hugely to like that feeling that we're talking about. Right. When you get in, you don't immediately start talking about, okay, so like, what's this project? What are you doing? You know, ideally you've done a little bit of, a little bit of research before they come in in some way. And you kind of just spend the first few minutes, like talking about life, you know, like, Hey, I saw you went to so-and-so like college. I went, you know, I was a couple hours down the road there. Like, what did you think about that experience? You know, just have something, you know, you gotta, you gotta get everyone comfortable um, up front, it's almost like priming, right? You want to prime people up front so that they get comfortable because that's also going to help you dive deeper into the conversation with them, like into that qualification and discovery process as well. You can't just like run right off to the gun and start asking them like deep questions because they're not, you're, 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 they're not going to do it. Yeah. Dan Sullivan 
talks about the fact that what we're looking for in ideal clients or customers or, you know, whatever industry you're in, whatever you call those people, what we're looking for is people that are like us, people that reflect our values that we can align with. And when he, when I heard him say that, that was such an epiphany moment because it's, that's true. I mean, we look at our clients and we say, okay, demographics and geographics and all that, but the, the psychographics, what do they believe? Can we al- align on beliefs and values and, and things like that? Because that ultimately helps us build that rapport, helps us build that relationship and can get us through, you know, let's face it, not an easy process. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's like part of the setting expectations thing, right? It's like, this is not, This is, there's going to be struggles in whatever this project, like no matter what, no matter who you choose, just so you know, there's no, there's never been a perfect project. There's never been a perfect process. Yeah. <laughs> so you want to, you definitely want to make sure that, um, that you have some kind of understanding of how they respond to those things. That's a good point. Chris says, if you're not putting your thoughts, your opinions, your design style out there consistently, then a, cl- a client will never say they're the one about you. But if you do put yourself out there and then there's the opportunity for those people to find you, I think that's a good point. Yep. It's kind of like repelling the people who you don't want to be attracted to you. That That's definitely an important part of that. I think I do agree with that. I just don't think it should be the only thing that you do. You shouldn't only put out your thoughts, your opinions, and your design. I actually think what you're better off doing is putting out what your clients are saying about you and about the impact that you have had on them. Like that will just generally um, produce produce more volume for you and probably like better volume, uh, higher quality volume than you talking about yourself and why you're better. Social proof is far more powerful than than personal proof. Yeah, nobody wants the uh, no offense to anybody, but nobody wants the street corner preacher right <laughs> and they're with their their megaphone talking about how great they are. Well, I guess the street corner preacher isn't do it. Talking uh, about how great someone else is. But. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica says that, uh, speaking of the illogical, uh, I guess (laughs) she's single-handedly keeping the fancy soap and candle industry alive over here. Yeah. See, that's good, Jessica, because I don't spend money on those sorts of things, but I will spend money on antique jewelry. So I'm keeping them in Candles are insanely expensive though. They're like, it's like 50 bucks to get like a, I don't know what you want to call it, like an organic personalized candle or something, which may, I don't know, maybe it's. Maybe it's worth that, but we, I, I wanted to bring up, um, how do you keep momentum up when you're kind of burned out and stressed and don't want to think about more work? You just want to finish what you have and you know, you should be marketing, you should be out there, but you don't, how do you bring yourself to do that? I think it, ideally it happens before you get to that point. Right. So the way that I think that, I think if I were to reframe that kind of question, it's like, what do I do to make sure that that doesn't happen? And to me, that's making sure that you have a good idea of who you want to um, attract and who you want to push away, right? You kind of have your, I think I've heard people call it like a go or no go list, but you know, so you have to be, you have to be diligent about defining exactly who you want to work with and exactly who you don't want to work with. Right. So if you're doing that and if you're comfortable with saying no and saying, Hey, I, I appreciate what you're looking to do here, but we're probably not going to be the best fit for you for these reasons. One, you're going to put good out there. You're going to, you might refer them to other people who would then probably refer other people back to you for different fit for like other fits that aren't good for them, for example. 
but it starts there in my opinion right because then you're really only bringing in clients that you know um, that you're going to work well with and that you can trust and that trust you and if you do that consistently and if you know and trust because of the process that you have in place based on what you're doing for marketing, based on what you're doing for your business development and, and building that pipeline, if that's consistent and it has been consistent because you have those processes in place and you devote a few hours a week to, to, making, to maintaining them, right? Then you don't have to have that fear that that's going to dry up, right? Because that's consistent. You know that that's going to come in. And you don't have to be bringing in those projects that are like, I don't really want this, but we need the money. I think so. It basically it kind of starts. It starts before that. If you if you do define these processes, if you do get systems in place, um, and if you are diligent about making sure that you're only bringing on clients that you're confident that you're confident are the right fit for you, then over time, like it's it's just it will, it shouldn't happen. Easier said than done. Yeah, if you've already gotten to that point where everything's messed up, just sweep everything clean again and start. <laughs> Delete all. I don't know if you necessarily need to sweep everything clean again, right? But I would, I would go back and say, okay, so like, what, what process am I doing right now to define whether or not um, I should take on a client? And then maybe even specifically, like, look at your client list now and identify who it is that you that you don't enjoy working with. And I'd kind of like reverse engineer, like, how did how did I get to the point where I chose to bring them in? And is there some kind of common theme that I'm seeing where like I probably shouldn't take on the, this type of work or these types of clients. Um, so it's, it's, it takes analyzing. Like there's not, there's not a perfect, there's not a perfect system for everyone, right? There's not something you can just deploy and be like, all right, this is, this is the silver bullet. If everyone does this, then you'll never reach that point. It really is like a custom, uh, a custom solution to each person in each firm, depending on what their goals are and what they want to do. Yeah. Wh- one thing I encourage people to do is, is make two lists, you know, make a, make a list, depending on how long you've been in business, et cetera, make a list of your five best clients. That's subjective. You get to be, you get to decide who those are, make a list of the five best and then why they were the best. And then make a list of the five. And this is where it gets a little bit dicey, the five worst or whatever word you want to use in there and why, and then compare and contrast those so that you can learn from, uh, from those and, and maybe works into your go, no go process or something like that. But, but yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it it, it does take intentionality and it does take analysis, you know, and I'm not going to go into it, but many people in this community have heard some of the stories again from, you know, sitting down with the staff one day and saying, Hey, there's seven, here's seven reasons that we should not take this project. But this was 2008 or nine ish. Um, when everything had had started to crash, but I know that we're going to be looking at each other on Monday and going, "What do you want to do if we don't take this project?" So we we took it on, right? Despite all of those red flags, all those seven whatever it was, we took it on. Ended up being one of the most horrific experiences of my entire career, anybody else's. And you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, what I would do today is say, "Okay, here's the seven reasons that we're not taking this project." I know what it would take to onboard this and to get it started. So we're going to invest that and everybody go out and, and shake the trees, so to speak, and, and find the, the next right project. Um, we're, going to, we're going to be intentional about just investing that time, those resources, instead of onboarding this to finding, finding the right fit. But, you know, again, hindsight being 2020. 
Well, we forget when we when we make that decision, Chad, that you're talking about, it's like, well, we need the money is that that 80-20 rule, which tends to it it never fails, right? So you're gonna have the you're gonna have that bottom 20% of your clients that you like the least uh, taking up 80% of your energy. That's exactly how it's gonna pan out. And that's that's that just sucks. It just sucks. Pareto's principle in action. Yes. Right yeah. Never fails. Yeah. And I feel like people ignore their intuition on that. Like we were talking about the power ups. Like I feel like there's a voice inside my head, at least saying you are not going to like this job. Do not take this job. And then I just override that and ignore it. And, um, and yeah, I'm sorry that I do that. I'd, I'd like to learn soon from my mistakes. I don't know when I'm going to learn, but and if you have, if you rely less on your feelings, right. So if you, if you put it more like actually have a, like have a checklist, um, of like good and bad and literally ha like know what that number is. If there's three things checked off on bad or something, then I'm not going to do it. I don't care what it is. I'm not going to do it because I know it's not going to turn out well. Then it makes it easier so that you don't actually have to kind of rely on that internal struggle because that's exactly what's going to happen, right? You're going to get it. You're like, well, I don't really want it, but this fee wouldn't be too bad. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind having that. And that's, that's the dangerous point right there. That's the dangerous point. Yeah. That's, that's where that, that system of systemizing systemization that you're talking about really comes in. As you said, it's, you know, I, I've seen this play out in firms that I've worked with and firms that I've consulted with in the past where, you know, let's say it's maybe it's a medium size or a larger firm and they've got their go, no, go, very well defined go, no, go process. And, you know, they're checking boxes and they're ranking things and all that because what happens is you have 10 people or whatever the number is that go into the conference room every Monday morning or whatever it is and go through all of the go, no go scores and people are lobbying, right? They say, Oh, we should take this. We should take that. And, and, and the logic has gone out the window. It's a friend of a friend or it's a whatever, it's a whatever. But when you have that process, it's like Blair ends when he talks about you have, you have this policy. I'm sorry, we have a policy. I, we can't do this. Oh, it's such a brilliant strategy, yeah. It is. It absolutely is. You you can do the same thing with a process like this. Well, I, I just realized we're all the way at the top of the hour. I mean, we could keep this conversation going for a long time. It's a much needed conversation. Um, so Tyler, thanks a lot for bringing this to us. And and uh, thank you for what you're doing uh, with Tyler Tactics. TylerTactics.com is the URL for that. Go sign up. Get newsletter every Sunday morning. I, I heard you say this on another on another interview, but you can read it Sunday if you want, or you can read it whatever day you want. But it's going to be about five minutes. Most I think I, I only get like maybe thirty or forty percent that will read it on Sunday, and then the rest of them tend to read it on Monday morning, which is fine. You should be don't read don't read a work email on Sunday. Go get the uh, Tyler Tactics newsletter so that you can learn and start to implement these things that Tyler talks about. Reach out to him on LinkedIn. And yes, yes. you see all of his posts a couple times a day. Uh, you're going to learn a lot from Tyler. So thank you for this conversation, Tyler. It's been great. Really enjoyed it. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Catherine. This community is awesome. Really, like every, you're all, you, Jeff and Catherine, you're crushing it. But like everyone that's here, you're crushing it too. Like it's just, you're, you're doing the right things. Yeah, that, that, that's a really great point. If, if you're here, you're already working on these things. So that's, that's great encouragement for everybody out there. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use maybe in your practice or even in your life? 
If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you, every week in the Entree Architect Network, I host the Context and Clarity Classroom. It's our weekly opportunity to take what we've learned from our special guests and put those lessons into action in your life and in your work. Find the Context and Clarity Classroom exclusively inside the Entree Architect Network at network.entrearchitect.com. And if you are so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to YouTube. Find the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Your likes and your ratings and your shares all help us help other entrepreneur architects like you. And together, they help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of context and clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you're going to find something there that interests you. You can learn more at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris Owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.